Well, if you wanted to start a fight amongst Christian church folks, one of the words you could use to do that is the word ordains. And so I figured it's a good time to preach a sermon on that and start a big fight about that. Not, not as in ordaining a pastor or an elder, but ordaining as in allows or sanctions or permits, as in God the Father who ordains all things. God the Father who is sovereign over all things, which is great when we're talking about sunshine and puppies, but when we're talking about trials and suffering and adversity, that's where it's hard. And let's get something very clear up front. God is not the author of evil, and there is no evil in him whatsoever. Neither does God tempt anyone to sin. For he is light and there is no darkness in him whatsoever. But God is completely sovereign over every single aspect of his creation. And that he knows the evil that is waging war against him in the world. And he stands indirectly behind that evil. And he's ready to redeem it and utilize it and harness it for his purposes. God wastes nothing. God uses all things. God controls all things and allows and ordains all things that come to pass. God ordained that his son would be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He would be arrested under false charges. He would be tortured by Roman soldiers. He would be publicly executed in the most horrible way that you could die at that time. All for his glory and our good. And as we move closer to the cross and start to land the plane on our now two-year series in Matthew, uh, we have to keep the sovereign will of God in the forefront at all times, especially as we march close to the cross. God ordained the cross, and it is a really, really good thing He did. And He ordains everything that comes into our lives, even the hard stuff. And so how are we to prepare for such events? I'm so glad you asked, because that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you're not in Matthew 26, as, as Len just read for us, last week we continued the road to the cross. God expresses his, that divine sovereignty again through the events that led up to the cross, all of them, including betrayal, including sacrifice, but also deliverance and forgiveness. This week we look at two other famous accounts on the way to the cross, the predicted betrayal of Peter and then Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's my hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this to teach us much about prayer and much about ourselves. Let's look again at our passage in Matthew 26, verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So let's get our bearings here. Jesus and his disciples, fresh from their Passover feast, probably actually not so fresh because that feast probably went late into the night. So they were probably all sleepy, which you've already all seen. And Jesus makes the jaw-dropping statement that his coming sacrifice on that night, just here hours ago probably from where they are now, he said his body is the bread and his blood is the wine, fulfilling the Passover. 
They sing a hymn, which is probably a psalm, and then they head out to the Mount of Olives. And so Mount of Olives overlooks the city with a beautiful panoramic view. I've got some pictures here from when we were in Israel. You can see kind of the, the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome. This is taken from the Mount of Olives and all of that. If you can kind of make out the walls of Jerusalem there, that is the city. You can see the whole city from the Mount of Olives. I think I have one more here. You can see looking down at the graves and then a closer view of the city itself. Again, this is standing on the Mount of Olives. The Gospels tell us that Jesus often went away to pray. And the Mount of Olives was probably one of his favorite spots as he overlooked the city and prayed for the city. I can recall before we planted here, the elders of Green Pond hiked up stairway and overlooked Vernon and took time to pray for Vernon, took time to pray for this church to be planted and for it to be fruitful. Against the backdrop, again, this beautiful scenery of the city set before them, Jesus drops another bomb. He says, tonight you will all fall away from me. It's like, Jesus, do you have anything encouraging to say? Like last time we got together, you just said, one of you is going to betray me. Now we're having this moment overlooking the city, this beautiful moment. And he says, guess what, guys? You will all fall away tonight because of me. The Greek here for fall away is skandalizo, which you can probably figure is where we get our English word scandal, which means if you're associated with something that is immoral or associated with something that is culturally unacceptable, you are then canceled. You are then blacklisted. Right? You, are, you are in a scandal. And so Jesus is saying, because you're associated with me, you will fall away. Literally, you will run away. Jesus is just, again, full of discouraging statements. And as with all things, even this is under the sovereign plan of God's redemption. And, And Jesus calls in for scriptural support. He says, as it's written in the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 13, 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In that context, and in the context that Jesus is quoting it, he's saying it's God's sword against God's shepherd. He says, I will strike the shepherd. God the Father will strike the shepherd. And he will, of course, strike the shepherd on the cross. And as a result of that, the sheep, the disciples then, will be scattered. They will will literally run away because of this. God is the one striking the shepherd. In this case, God is the one striking Jesus, putting him on the cross. And Jesus goes willingly, of course. And when that happens, Jesus knows that his disciples will scatter due to the scandal of being associated with Jesus. And Jesus adds a little bit more info in verse 32. He says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Jesus predicting his own resurrection and saying, after that, I will go before you to Galilee. A little bit of hope there, saying, we will meet again. You will see me again. And, and kind of inherent in that is, I will restore you. I will reconcile you. Jesus, again, telling the disciples something that they don't want to hear. Their heads must have been spinning trying to process this. And they certainly don't like what they hear. So, of course, Peter is the one to speak up first. 
Look at verse 33. Peter steps up, puffs his chest out, says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Classic Peter. Ready, fire, aim. Speak first, think second. Peter instantly emotes in the situation and says, No way, even if all these other clowns deny you, I will not. Sorry, guys. Right? I won't deny you. I'm not like them. And Jesus answers, Well, actually, Mr. Bravado, um, you will be the first one to deny me. This very night, before the morning comes, before the rooster crows again, you will deny me three times. One commentator writes, Jesus knows better than his disciples what his disciples are made of. Peter ups the ante. He says, no, 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 no. Absolutely never. I will die for you. All of the disciples then join in to Peter's chest thumping and say, yes, we will never deny you. We have the convenience of being on this side of redemptive history and knowing that it turns out that Peter's words didn't age very well, did they? We know that it's true. It makes him look foolish, impulsive, and weak. And we don't like that because we're a lot closer to Peter sometimes than we'd like to admit. We also have the convenience of parallel gospel accounts in Luke's version. He adds a very important nuance in Luke chapter 22. Luke's account includes a very, very important detail, which I am fully going to steal from Dr. Luke. Luke chapter 22. Why am I looking at the wrong page? Chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But watch this. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother's Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Luke includes a very, very important detail. He says, Satan is going to tempt you, but I have prayed for you. Poor Peter must have been perplexed. Imagine hearing his Savior saying, Satan's coming after you, but I have prayed for you. Um, thanks? Like, I'm simultaneously encouraged and terrified at that moment. What does that mean? It should remind us of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we're faced with the temptation to sin or to deny our commitment to the Lord Jesus by our action, is our first reaction then to puff our chest and thump and say, no. I will never, ever, I would never do that. Or is our first reaction like Jesus taught Peter in that moment to pray? I've prayed for you, Peter, because you don't know what's coming. Peter fails, but Jesus succeeds. He prays for Peter to be able to withstand temptation, but he won't. But he will also knows, know that Peter will be restored when it's all said and done. And so the first point is this. Peter, or prayer rather, prepares us to face temptation. Prayer prepares us to face temptation. Sometimes temptation comes out of the clear blue sky, it seems. 
Sometimes we get a little heads up. Our first reaction, though, should be to prepare for temptation by prayer. They say the time to prepare to defend yourself or your home or your family against any threat is before that threat is actually there. Have a plan to defend yourself, your home, your family. The same applies, Christians. Have a plan to defend yourself against the attacks of the enemy. What happens when you are tempted to deny Jesus to sin? The primary way that we all deny Jesus is when we sin. When we make that choice that says, no, I stood up there, I was baptized, and I promised that I would love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but in this moment, I'm choosing me. I'm going to love me with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's one of the primary ways that we deny Jesus is sinning against Jesus. It goes against our covenant, our commitment. Peter gets the mother of all heads up here, doesn't he? And yet he blows right by it. Instead of dropping to his knees and begging Jesus, please don't let me fall, he puffs out his chest and says, I got this. I got this. There's no way that that's going to happen. Overconfidence in what we can handle is the first step to falling away. We say all the time, I got this. It's okay. I can handle it. I'll only have two drinks. I'm not going to have a third helping of dessert or food. I can be alone with my girlfriend or boyfriend, and it's not going to go too far this time. I can be alone on the internet and not look at things I'm not supposed to look at. I'm going to be okay. I can do it. And then what happens? Matthew Henry writes, improper self-confidence like that of Peter is the first step to a fall. There's a proneness in all of us to be overconfident. But those fall soonest and foulest who are most confident in themselves. And what about us? If you've lived long enough, you know where your temptations to sin are. Part of the blessing of being 52 now is that I know where I'm going to sin. I know my trouble spots. I know the problems I'm going to get into. And yet sometimes I just charge right into them wholeheartedly and say, I can handle it. I got it. I can do this. And when we sin, we deny Jesus. All sin is a denial of our allegiance to Jesus, whether it's gluttony or gossip or drunkenness or sexual immorality or laziness, whatever, you name it. Before we face those temptations, know what those temptations are and prepare yourself to face them in prayer. What's another recipe for falling away into sin? When the ante gets upped in situations of stress or anxiety or adversity or sickness, then it all seems to be this pressurized situation. Think of how this scene is increasingly stressful for the disciples. Think of how this scene is increasingly stressful for Jesus. And yet Jesus says, in the midst of all this, in the midst of everything that I'm dropping and the stress and the fear that you feel and all of that, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. You're going to walk away. When faced with trials and suffering and anxiety, it actually reveals who we truly are and who we truly trust. J.C. Ryle said, what you are in the day of trial, that you are and nothing more. What you are in the day of trial, that you are and nothing more. Sometimes these two things, the overconfidence and stress, they work together, don't they? 
It's like we can do it, we can handle it, but then yet we're pressurized and full of anxiety and fear and everything else and we march right into a situation and it blows up in our face. Sometimes the more we sense we're losing control, what happens? We grab on all the tighter, thinking that we're the ones in control. We try to assert this fake control over our situations and the tighter we grab onto the rope and all the while, what? What rope are we grabbing onto? We should be grabbing onto Jesus in prayer. But yet sometimes we just try and zoom in and control the situation and grab onto whatever rope we can. And Jesus says that's not the way to do it. You should be preparing yourself for temptation in prayer. You should be holding on to me and holding me fast, not yourself. Jesus is not overconfident, but he certainly is encountering adversity. And the greatest adversity that anyone has ever experienced in this example for us is profoundly helpful. Look at verse 36. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Jesus leads them to a special place called Gethsemane. The name literally means oil press, as in olive oil for its many olive trees. They don't call it the Mount of Olives for nothing. And if you get to Israel, which I recommend, the Mount of Olives is still there, and there's a place that they've marked off called the Garden of Gethsemane. You probably can't see that too well, but in this place where they have said is the Garden of Gethsemane, they have very, very, very old olive trees. Olive tree is actually not like one single trunk. It's actually like a lot of trees that grow together and form this beautiful yet somewhat ugly, gnarly mess of a tree. And I think I have a couple other pictures in there that they've cultivated this garden, and this is actually probably the spot where, more accurately, Jesus was. And as they usually do in Israel, they decided to bulldoze it over and put a church there. And so this is the Church of the Nations, I believe, which is just to the right of it. The Garden of Gethsemane is to the left and once again, you see, you can almost picture, though, Jesus. There's, there's a, a quiet kind of beauty to this place. You can almost picture our Savior leaning up against one of these trees, being sorrowful, realizing what is coming. Matthew tells us that first he says to the disciples, sit here and I'm going to go a little further into the garden and pray. And Jesus takes his inner circle Peter, James, and John, he goes a distance away from the other disciples and he begins to be sorrowful and full of trouble. He says to his closest friends, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Please don't leave me. I need you here. Stay with me. Notice that Jesus has his disciples and then he has his closest friends. Here he can really show his true emotions. This is, this is where he unloads his emotion. This is where he becomes sorrowful unto death because he's safe with his closest friends. If you don't have friends that are like that, that are good and godly, get some friends that are like that where you can be yourself, where you can show these emotions. All of us have been sorrowful. Some have spent extended times in times of extreme sorrow or darkness and depression. A few of us may have even been sorrowful unto death, where you see no way out. Jesus isn't talking about suicide here, but rather a way of expressing himself that shows the reality of what he is about to face. Death 
the sin of the world placed on his shoulders, the father turning his face away as Jesus, though he never sinned, becomes sin for us. Not only that, Jesus was facing the rejection of his own Jewish people once again, publicly crying for his death and his crucifixion, being accused of crimes he never committed, the whole nightmare playing out in public, the impending loneliness as he soon will be abandoned by his closest friends and betrayed into the hands of his enemies. You can see why in his agonized state he asks the Father if there is any way out of this. Look at verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there's any prayer that reveals the true heart of Jesus Christ, this might be it. He goes a little farther ahead, literally falls down in grief, face in the dirt, weeping uncontrollably and praise, my Father, if there's any way that you can do this without me going through what I am about to go through, please. But not as I will, but what you will. The cup that Jesus is referring to is the cup of God's wrath for sin. Jesus will drink it all in our place as he satisfies the full wrath of God for our sin. And think about this. Jesus not only has to die in the most publicly humiliating and painful, hanging naked on a cross after being tortured and whipped and beaten, he not only has to do that for hours and hours and hours, pulling himself up for his very next breath and slowly suffocating to death, he has to do that with the sin of the entire world, God's wrath for sin on his shoulders. Some of us can attest to the fact of being greatly hurt by the sin of other people. That's just one, one sin. Jesus has a sin of the entire world on his shoulders. I often think he could have been dead before a single nail pierced his flesh. The weight of the wrath of sin. And so naturally, in his humanity, we see this this. this glimpse of Jesus saying, if there's any other way we can do this. And then that moment that crystallizes the resolve of our Savior, he comes to and he says, nevertheless, Father, it's not my will. It's your will. If the answer is no, Father, I'm good to go. Your plan, not mine. The redemptive plan of God is more important to Jesus than his own moment of weakness. He entrusts himself fully to the plan of the Father. And so I'll say it this way. Prayer prepares us to accept God's will over ours. Prayer prepares us to accept God's will over ours. And what massive implications for our personal lives there is in this. How many times do we, do we pray for things to pass, some of them good things, And then we don't finish our prayer by submitting ourselves to the will of our good and loving and all-knowing Father Church. Every time we ask the Father for something, we should put this on the end of it. Not my will, Lord, but your will. This is what I want. We are free to ask the Father for anything. He says pray at all times with all kinds of requests. He says pray continually. We can ask him. We can pour out our hearts to our Father. We can say anything 
But we have to have the second part of that prayer. That says, not as I want, Lord, but what you want. We think of the heavy requests we have for, for healing, for serious illness or injury, for restoration of marriages, for the salvation of our family and loved ones, and those are all good things. And, and why wouldn't God answer them with a yes? And the truth is we don't know the secret wisdom of God. And we don't know what his will is for some of these very hard situations. It seemed like why wouldn't he say yes to these things? But as Spurgeon said, when we can't trace his hand, we have to trust his heart. We have to know the heart of Jesus. We have to know the heart of God, our Father. God is gracious and merciful, and he's good, and he's kind. When we think of requests to find a spouse or to have relationships reconciled, to provide income or direction, and we should finish every single prayer with not my will, but your will. Prayer prepares us to accept God's will over ours. And church, Jesus will pray this prayer to his Father, and his Father will say no. Think about that. Jesus prays this prayer to his Father, and the Father's answer is no. Another theologian wrote this. Praying to God is not like putting in an order at a restaurant where we have the right to be upset if the meal is not brought to our table. God is free to answer as he pleases, but we have the assurance that no matter how he answers, it will be for his glory and our good. He certainly heard the prayer of his son, and he said no, and that was most certainly for the greater good. It's a real good thing that the father said no, because we are justified through faith in what Jesus did. After the Father said no. What do we do, church, when the answer to our prayers is no? Do we continue to entrust ourselves to our Father? Do we lash out in anger? Do we withdraw from Him? Or do we do what Jesus did? Do we take a deep breath? Do we get up? Do we go on with the mission and accept the will of the Father? Look at verse 40. He came to His disciples and He found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you might not enter a temptation. Seriously, Peter, I just told you, you're going to deny me three times. You probably want to be praying about that instead of taking a little nappy do right now. Not a good idea. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. After this gut-wrenching, face-in-the-dirt prayer, Jesus goes to his closest friends who he asked to stay with him because he told them already that he was consumed with sorrow and stay with me, be with me, I need you. And what does he find? He finds them sleeping. Seriously? These guys like five minutes ago were like, we'll die for you! And now they're sleeping. The contrast here is, is, is staggering. He says to Peter, seriously? You couldn't stay awake with me? I need you. 
You should be watching and praying that you don't fall into temptation. Help me. This is the moment that I need you the most, and you're not here. Look at this. Jesus, then the one is, is, is he that says these words. Often we don't think Jesus is the guy who says these words, but Jesus is the one who says it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look at the humanity of Jesus. Look at, we, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because we have one who's been tempted like us in every way, but one who didn't sin. He knows what it's like to be weak, but the spirit is willing. He needs them. He needs their encouragement. He needs them to be there for him, and they're not. He goes away and prays a second time, but the prayer is a little different this time. He says, Father, if this can't pass, your will be done. It seems that Jesus has started to resolve himself to the Father's answer. He goes to check on his friends a second time and finds them again sleeping, and he cuts them a little slack because their eyes were heavy. Probably been up all night by this point. Sometimes it's best if somebody's just really tired to leave them sleeping because their eyes are heavy, right? Dads, new dads, talking to you right now. (laughs) You see mom's eyelids are sleepy and heavy? Be like Jesus right here. Just let them stay there and rest, and you continue to take over. It seems that Jesus is starting to resolve himself to the fact that the Father has said no. Praise those exact same words again. After the third time, saying those words, he goes to his disciples and says, guys, get up. Let's go. It's time. My my betrayer is coming. Could you imagine that scene in the Garden of Eden, you know, still somewhat up, again, overlooking the city, seeing men, probably with torches, being led by one of his own to come and take him. It's time. It's starting At that moment, that crystallization there, Jesus has fully resolved himself to the will of the Father, and he stands up and says, it's time. Let's go. Here's the point. Prayer prepares us for our mission. Prayer prepares us for our mission. George, there comes a time after praying about a situation and praying and praying and praying and not seeing a change and hearing no and no and no that we just got to accept the will of God and move on. We've just got to say, this is what God said. I'm okay with that. We sometimes see that the situation is not going to change and I will argue all the time that God's primary way that he's going to give you direction, Holy Spirit, his word, The practical way is situations. You don't see the situation changing and you've been praying, God has given you an answer. That doesn't mean that you don't, you you can continue to pray, but you better get busy with what's in front of your face that God has given you to do. Sometimes we have this analysis paralysis where it's like, well, yeah, I prayed, Uh, the situation is the same and uh, I don't really like that, so I'm going to do nothing until God answers me the way I want him to. Bad plan. Do what God has called you to do. Do the next right thing. Do be a godly person in the midst of what situation God has called you to. This is one of the hardest things for people. We pray and pray and we spin our wheels and all the while the situation around us is clearly indicating God's will and we fail to acknowledge it. 
I say, I wish God would just tell me and show me what to do. And I have to be that pastor that says, he did. He said, no, it doesn't look like it's changing. Keep going, doing what you're doing. Be responsible with what you have, where he's called you to until he changes the situation. But maybe he won't change the situation. We've got to remember that. But prayer is the way we are prepared for our mission. Get on with the mission, church. You've got work to do. Like Jesus, sometimes the answer is no. And he says, get up, let's go. This is not 80s-haired, gentle Jesus with the lamb around him, right? This is not, as my friend Pastor Ryan says, precious moments, Jesus. This is Jesus, the manliest man that has ever walked the face of the earth. This is Jesus, the strongest man that has ever walked the face of the earth. This is Jesus saying, it's time. Wake up. Let's go. I got my answer. We're doing this. My betrayer is at hand. Sure, have your moments. Jesus had moments. Have those moments. Pour out your heart to God. Weep and pray for him. Pray to him. He welcomes us to pour out our hearts and prayers, but accept his will, like Jesus says, and move on. Get on with the mission. Church, you won't miss God's will, right? It's not like he's dropping these little breadcrumbs. And if you're a Christian kid from the 80s and 90s like me, you're just as jacked up about this as I am, right? It's just like, God's will, where am I supposed to go to college? Who am I supposed to marry? If I marry the wrong person, then like everybody in the world's going to be one spouse off, and it's going to be a disaster, <laughs> Where am I supposed to, what am I, what's, what's God really want me to do? I don't understand spreading tea leaves and throwing out fleece and listening. I heard a song on the radio and it told me that's it, that's God's will. No. <laughs> God speaks through circumstances. He's the master of every circumstance. He puts everything into play. You're not going to miss his will. He's not up there wringing his hands going, oh my gosh, Mike, how many more signs? How many more songs do I have to put on the radio? The magic verses that point you to these things. You missed it. Do I have to write it in the sky? Mary, Melanie. We're not going to miss it. We're not going to miss God's will. We could do things, don't get me wrong, that are not God's will, primarily like sin. And we talked about that before. We are perfectly capable of messing up our own lives. We are perfectly capable of muddying up the wheels and sinking them in the muck and the mire so that it's a lot harder to do what God has called us to do through really bad decisions. But that doesn't mean two things. That doesn't mean that God's going to give up on you because he's right there with you in the mud. And that doesn't mean that he's going to waste those moments in the mud. Because he's going to redeem it, just like he's going to redeem Peter soon. It's a lot easier if you don't end up in the mud. Just throwing that out there. Try to make those God-honoring decisions so you don't muck up the wheels. But God doesn't give up on us when we do. If he chooses to answer yes at some point in the future, he will make that clear. But don't miss the step of praying to prepare yourself for the mission, whatever that mission may be. And we have to accept the reality of God's will. And then we move on with the mission. And once again, we find ourselves right back in the sovereign hand of God and we need to trust him, whatever, here's our word, he ordains. 
Here's the big idea. Prayer prepares us to face what God ordains. Prayer prepares us to face temptation. It prepares us to accept God's will over ours and prepares us to face our mission, all things that God ordains. I can recall a moment during Christmas time in, in the end of 2019, um, I had these lumps on my neck that were being biopsied and I had no idea what was going on, but I started to actually come to terms with the fact that, yeah, this, this might actually be something. This might actually be cancer. And then what? And we were at a family gathering and um, down by my sisters, which ironically we were yesterday. We were down by my sisters and naturally we had to stop at Starbucks because, you know, you can't drive an hour and a half back up to Sussex County without being empowered by Starbucks. And so everybody went in to Starbucks and I stayed to protect the vehicle, of course. And the song came on and I know I've been <laughs> really banging on songs, but this really happened, right? This, the song came on and it's an old hymn from 1675. And the hymn is, Whatever my God ordains is right. The first verse says, Whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does or doth, and follow where He guideth. He is my God through dark, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to Him I leave it all. And the last verse says, Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. You get to that point where you just say, I'm leaving this to you, Lord. I don't know what you've ordained, but I'm going to trust you. Because prayer is going to prepare us to face what God ordains. Do we leave it all to God and get on with what He ordained? Or do we wallow in how we want things to be? Jesus left it all to the will of the Father. He poured out His heart for the situation to be changed. And His Father said no. And prayer prepared Him to face what God ordained. And so what is God allowing in your life right now that you've asked him to remove? What is coming up in the near future that you are fearful of? What situation just hasn't changed that you need to accept and get on with it and glorify God in the middle of it? And Jesus agonized in prayer, and so should we. And I'm sure his disciples were right alongside him praying before they fell asleep and said, God, please, do you understand what's happening it looks like Jesus is going to go to the cross. They're going to sell him out. This can't happen. I'm sure they were right there with him. And the father says, it must happen. I've ordained it. Once again, Scripture paints two contrasting accounts this morning. The prayerless self-confidence of Peter and the complete prayer-soaked dependence of our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. We see these contrasts all over in Scripture and church. Who are we most like? Are we most like Peter shaking our fist, beating our chests in the face of the ordained will of God, or are we more like Jesus, humbly pouring out our hearts in prayer, 
asking for him to do our heart's desire, but accepting his answer, accepting the will with courage and conviction, facing what God has ordained for us. Think, church, of the centrality of prayer in all this. This is what always kind of eventually smacks me in my giant forehead. If Jesus had to pray, Jesus had to pray, what is our excuse? This is Jesus Christ praying in the garden for all of these things. How much more, church, do we have to? Prayer prepares us to face what God ordains. Let's take this opportunity to pray to our Heavenly Father right now. Good and gracious God, as we march closer in in your holy word in this account of the cross and the events leading to the cross. This is such a powerful moment of Jesus being in the garden and agonizing and pouring out his heart to you, Lord. And you still said no. And Father, it is for our good and for your glory that you said no because there was no other way. Blood had to be shed to pay for sin. And it could not be the blood of an animal, and it could not be the blood of any ordinary man, but it must have been the blood of God himself, that perfect, sinless, eternal blood. And Father, we praise you and thank you that Jesus was obedient and strong, and Jesus went ahead with the mission perfectly, and you saw his sacrifice, and you accepted it, and you raised him up. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be restored. We can be renewed. We can be forgiven. And we look at the cross and we look at the resurrection and we say with the Apostle Paul, if he did not give up his own son, how will he then not give us all things? We thank you that you are good and that you are faithful. And we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit which empowers us to do what you've called us to do. And we pray that we would seek you in prayer, prepare for the fight, prepare for temptation, prepare to have our will taken over by your will, prepare to do our mission, and prepare to do the ordained will of God as we do what you have called us to do for your glory. And we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.